All right. It's a little bit after 11 p.m. You are listening to WMSC 90.3 in Upper Montclair, New Jersey. This is Japan Nick of Japanic's Rock and Metal Pandemonium. Um, coming up in just a few minutes, I have an exclusive interview with uh, the legendary The Metallic Rose, Sukunapka, one of the OG metal figures from the 1980s at WMSC. Um, I got a, a really awesome chance to speak to her yesterday and do a fairly decently long interview. It came out to maybe about 15, 20 minutes. And just after these messages, I'll play it right now. All right, but listen up. In Montclair, New Jersey, right now, it's 62 degrees. Uh, the winds are southeast, 2 miles per hour. The humidity is 90%. Uh, it's foggy out there. Sunday, it's going to be 86 degrees high. Uh, it's going to be a, probably a sunny day. Precipitation, about 20%. South by southwest winds of 10 miles per hour. Sunday night, it's going down to 66 degrees. It's going to be partly cloudy uh, with 20% humidity. And south winds by eight miles per hour and news from the oregon public broadcasting site um portland police arrest protester accused of blocking tracks um a protester has been charged with criminal trespass after police say he blocked railroad tracks in northwest portland portland police sergeant pete simpson says 41 year old tim norgren positioned himself on the tracks thursday with his arm locked to a large barrel filled with cement on Friday, police cut the barrel from Norgren's arm and booked him in the Multnomah County Jail. Supporters of Norgren said in a statement that the Stevenson, Washington man locked himself to a barrel for more than 24 hours to oppose fossil fuel exports and trade agreements that send jobs overseas. That protest coincided with President Obama's visit to Portland to push for a trans-Pacific trade deal. Well, back to uh, the music and WMSC. Here is my interview with Sue Kanapka, the Metallic Rose. Enjoy, everybody. Thank you. This is an interview on Friday, May 8th, 2015, with WMSC Metal DJ alumni, Sue Kanapka, the Metallic Rose, by Nick Perkel. Now, Sue, what year did you join WMSC? I joined WMSC, and the exact date was September 14th, 1982. Tell me how you got the DJ name. The Metallic Rose. Well, I was going to be doing some DJ work for one of the elders that was at the station, and he wanted me to take over his show for a summer while he was out traveling. But there were no female DJs at the time who were doing heavy metal, and uh, he did not feel comfortable with me going on the air as Sue Kanopka. So we started to toss around some nicknames that were... Yeah, some, somewhat more palatable to be played on the air. Uh, some of the names that we were tossing around were like Heavy Metal Mistress, just really stupid things, and I did not like any of them. I lived in the town of Roseland at the time. Sudden says Metallic Rose, and I said that was the stupidest name I ever heard. And two weeks later, I went on the air, used it, and it stuck. Now, Sue, can you tell me about what drove you to become a part of WMSC? I had some time to kill in between classes, and I've always loved music. I've always been driven by music. But what I really wanted to do was I wanted to become involved in the station more as a newscaster. That was my initial interest. So I was uh, looking at the Montclairian, which was the state before the campus, and saw an advertisement for WMSC. Took the elevator up to the fourth floor and thought I'd see what it was involved Tell me about the early days of your tenure at WMSC. The early days were very um, amusing. Uh, as I said before, there were not too many um, females, in, especially for heavy metal at the time. So there were a lot of pranksters. I took a lot of uh, heat or abuse, as it were, um, especially trying to do my demo tape, uh, which was on a reel-to-reel -reel at the time. So you can imagine, you know, nowadays it's a little bit easier because you could just play stop and rewind and stop and rewind. Uh, not so easy when you're doing reel-to-reel. -reel. It could be really chaotic. It was also very interesting, though, because there was a lot of newness during the early part of the 1980s. A lot of new bands coming out, a lot of new material. So for me, it was, you know, trying with me being female in a more male-dominated world, but also exciting. 
because it was things that I had never seen before. What was going on in the metal world as well as college radio at that point in time? Well, college radio had always been known as uh, ones that pushed the envelope. College radio didn't have the same boundaries as, say, some of the marketable radio stations uh, that had to bend more towards the rules for the FCC as well as uh, marketing. With college radio, you had the opportunity to play people who maybe were not even signed. So we had quite an interest in playing those people who were obscure, which is why we kind of went with the slogan, um, underground radio, because we would bring people that you'd never heard before up on the station and pretty much play anybody. And in the middle world, that's really what was happening at the time was we had a lot of local bands that were in the area that weren't getting exposure except by playing in the clubs. And so everybody started getting involved in tape trading and bringing things up to the radio station, and they were getting heard. And it wasn't just local bands. We started to get bands from all over the place. We were getting demo tapes from the West Coast, and we were getting tapes from Canada, from overseas, and Europe. It was really exciting. In the 1980s heyday of WMSC, how far of a reach did MSC have? We had 0.86 watts. And I know that sounds as minuscule as it is. On a very good day, if it was raining, you might be heard or in the Clifton area. But that didn't deter people very much because what would happen is people would actually come onto the grounds of the campus and people would start taping shows and they would send it out. And that's pretty much how we broadcast our reach. It wasn't so much what you could hear that night, but maybe what you might have heard maybe a week later, somebody passing a tape along saying, oh, you got to listen to this guy or you got to listen to this girl. And that's how things spread. Uh, I wish we had more power at the time, but we didn't. And even uh, moving to another um, and on the radio dial did not help. Thinking about that, what did you think of the move to 101.5? I was dead set against it from the get-go. I was one of the naysayers. A lot of people at the station were like, yes, you know, we're going to... We're going to have more power and we're going to be heard more. And I'm like, are they seeing something I'm not seeing? Because for me, I'd always listened to FM radio uh, ever since I was a kid. And I know that sometimes, you know, you'll be in the car or you'll be listening on what we had was Walkmans back then. And he would tune into a station, but if there was another one that was close by, it would bump your favorite station. It would really totally be annoying. So I'm thinking, well... 0.86 watts on 101.5, how is that going to work? Because I know a whole lot of radio stations within both New Jersey and New York that are around that area on the dial, and I knew we would be swallowed up. Now, on the topic of tape trading, how did you become a part of this? Oh, it was all, all within the radio station of itself. I took the lead from uh, my mentors at the station who were very heavily into it by then because they had been involved in playing heavy metal for at least two or three years prior to me coming on board. And it was exciting because I really got a hold of these tapes. They would get a hold of them first, and they would you know, bring me into one of the production studios and say, you got to hear this, listen to this. And that was how I started getting exposed to things. And then I would have some of the bands that would actually show up during my show, and they would start bringing their tapes. And we would start saying, okay, well, I can make a copy of this, because I'm lucky enough to have one of the tape-to-tape uh, -tape boxes that I can make uh, a copy of a tape. So I was able to, you know, spread the wealth, so to speak, using the my little box. But it was it was an interesting band that came up, some of which actually came part of the show, to pack out part of the show. With the WMSC board in the 1980s, were you running music through both vinyl and cassettes or just vinyl? Initially, just vinyl. Uh, we had, on the board, we had the two turntables, and we also had the reel-to-reel, -reel, but as I said, that was a little bit more tricky, and we didn't normally have a lot of music that would come on the reel-to-reel -reel that we would do. Um, mainly interviews you would see on the reel-to-reel. -reel. Later on, I would say more towards the mid-1980s, we um, got a cassette deck that was put onto the board. That made things a little bit better. Prior to that, the only way that we could play cassettes on the air was to actually take the boombox and hold it up to a live mic. So with the metal shows in the 1980s, did you get to pick out your own music, or were there like rotation albums where it's just like, you have to play like five or six songs from each thing? 
Well, there was a like rack. each hour. There was a rack behind uh, the board that had um, brand new albums that came in, and we were expected to pull songs from them at least once an hour. And there were the the pickings that what they got from the regular radio station. We're not talking about the heavy metal department as we called it. Were slim, so we played pretty much what we wanted to play and what the people who were listening wanted to hear. What were your, some of your favorite albums to play at WMSC? Favorite album, one of my absolute favorite albums to play was uh, Killers by Iron Maiden. Um, I absolutely love that when it came out, Murders in the Room Work is one of my favorite songs to this day. Oh, uh, let's see. Motorhead, Ace of Spades, Judas Priest, Screaming for Vengeance. Uh, some people don't like that album too much, but I do. Here's, a, here's an oldie, because uh, every once in a while I would play things that were, The Night was very, very good for me. Um, I loved Scorpions, like Love Drive, Animal Magnetism, really some great, great songs and albums to play out there. How did you start getting your in-station guests and doing phone or interviews with bands? Most of the in-station guests showed up. They just walked in the door, um, sight unseen, and it would be fun because half the time we were actually on the air. We were live on the air, and all of a sudden you would see a group of people walk past the window, and you're like, you're on the air, and they're saying, hi, and Oh, okay. People just walked in. It, it, it was great because it, it just brought spontaneity and then people would really want to hear what was going on because they would hear all this commotion, laughter, and then when they realized it was a, an actual band that was there, that was sold. What were some of your favorite tags that bands recorded for your show, as well as WMSC back then? Oh, we had some uh, for WMSC, uh, for the metal department. We had Lemmy. Um, for Motorhead, I believe we had, we also had King Diamond. Uh, there was there was quite a few. Gary Holt from Exodus. <laughs> yeah, Gary, he's still out there too. I remember um, hearing that one on uh, this one recording of uh, Paul's show on YouTube. It was like a 1985 clip, and I was thinking like, oh my God, this is like classic WMSC, and I'm just thinking, damn, if we could only find more of that, but um. There were some pretty good tags on there. Yes, very much so. Tell me about when Nuclear Assault visited your show. Nuclear Assault came up to the radio station. Um, just like I said, they walked into the studio. I happened to be on the air, and it was Dan Wilker and John Connolly that came into the studio. I was not planned. I was all by myself to say. So they sat down, and then I asked John if there was anything he wanted to talk about, which retrospect was a bad move, but it turned out to be absolutely hysterical. He went on a rant about um, music business and uh, insulted a few people on the air. Um, <sighs> kind of got out of control, but it was a lot of it was a lot of fun. They actually brought up a couple of six packs too, which mm -hmm. got me into a little bit of trouble, but that was okay. Um, I actually got a, a little bit of a suspension out of that one. And then I came back, and they showed up again, this time to apologize uh, for getting me in trouble in the first place, and they didn't bring beer that time. But it was great. Now, what were some other major interviews that you were able to acquire at your time at WMSC? Probably the uh, second one would be when I had an interview with uh, Jason Newstead after he joined Metallica. And that was during the Master of Puppets tour. Like, what did you do? Did you go out to, like, a giant stadium or something like that to see them? Yes. Yes, we were in the green room at Giant Stadium, and I was actually with uh, Bill Trujancic at the time. Um, it, it was very crazy, unscripted um, interview that I would like to just not listen to ever again, but it was good because I actually got to meet the band afterward. And uh, I know WMSC got thanked in the liner notes of some major albums back in the 80s. Can you cite some albums where that happened that you were most proud of to appear in the liners? Well, for me, personally, uh, with Nuclear Souls albums, uh, Game Over, I was very grateful to the band uh, for, for appreciation of me as a DJ uh, that they had mentioned me. Most of the time we would get WMSC just mentioned. Gene Corey would be mentioned uh, often, I think, because he had he was, he was represented the metal department in the early 1980s pretty well. And so we would get a lot of the him on a lot of liner notes, as well as with Paul and Mike Weinstein. There's a lot of different DJs that were mentioned on several different albums. 
what were some great concerts that you look back on very fondly that you got to see in the 1980s and 90s? One of the best concerts I ever saw was Iron Maiden opening for Judas Priest at Madison Square Garden. It was phenomenal. Uh, both bands were absolutely on point, but what made, made the whole atmosphere kick it for us, there was actual signs for WMSC being held. Listeners were there. How did you make that happen? We didn't. As far as I know, nobody had asked them to do it. They just did. It was phenomenal. That's that's a real high watermark right there. Oh, it was it was awesome. I I think that was probably one of the best things we could have ever seen. Now I've heard of DJ names like the Prince of Darkness, Fallen Angel, and Maximus Metal. Do you remember the names of these DJs? I know the Prince of Darkness was Paul Scottarello. Yes. Uh, some of the other ones, no. I think they came after I left in 1990. Trying to build up the full roster of metal DJ names from the 80s and 90s. Who else can you point to that was around at the station during those years that was a fierce supporter of rock and metal music, besides uh, yourself? We had a few other DJs that uh, did not work on the Saturday nights as often as we were, like uh, Mike McCann, called the Flash Rocking Man. He was more into the glam aspect. Uh, Delia Barrick was also involved. Um, a lot of people were up at the station at that time that may not have played heavy metal, but might have known other DJs there that did. Do you have anything you'd like to say to your fans from your years at WMSC um, p- about possibly some future plans on the horizon? Well, there are future plans, actually very very fast-moving future plans. Um, I just uh, was approved to come on board with uh, Nuclear Rock Radio, at NuclearRockRadio.com, and uh, the first show will actually be this coming Sunday from 4 to 8 p.m., and I believe I'll have a couple of other shows as well, um, Friday night and Saturday night um, as well, going on the same station. So it's, it's going to be really great fun for me to not only go back and bring back some of the things that I had done in the 1980s, but also bring it forward because there's also other bands out there right now that I, that I just totally love. And this is my way of being able to bring everything back in. Wrapping things up, what do you feel like were your five proudest moments at WMSC? I think that for me, the number one one was actually surviving, doing my demo tape, and being cleared for on-air, because that was quite a battle. It took a long time, and getting yelled at a lot, but I, I did it. I per- persevered, having... Nuclear assault come up. That was a, an awesome experience and something that I will never turn away. Uh, also, being able to meet Metallica. Coming back in the mid-80s, I had left for about a year, came back, and uh, I was right back into the middle of, middle of things and really loved being on Saturday night. So I had my Saturday night show and everybody, the station was so great. For me, the the most important part was the was actual listeners. When listeners would say to me, you know, Rose, thanks, I really got into this because I heard you on the air and you were playing this. And just recently I had somebody say to me, you know, that he became a DJ because of me. That was something, probably the most awesome experience ever. So it made me feel like my time at WMSC meant more to a lot of people that I didn't even know at the time. Final words. Final words. Heavy metal is here today. It is awesome. It is inspiring. And I say to people, if this is what you like in life, and this is what you want to do, then go for it, full tilt. And don't don't have anybody else tell you anything different. Rock on. This has been an interview on Friday, May 8th, 2015, with WMSC Metal DJ alumni, Sue Kanopka, the Metallic Rose, by Nick Thanks a lot for listening to my interview with Sue Kanapka. It was a real lot of fun to be able to record an interview with her. Now, coming up, we have some... Let's see. Also, keep in mind, I had a really nice block of German thrash with Sodom Obsessed by Cruelty from the Mortal Way of Live album. Before that was Creator, One Evil Comes, A Million Fall from Enemy of God. Destruction. Unconscious Ruins from, I believe, Release from Agony. Tankered with Zombie Attack from Zombie Attack. All right, here we go. Coming up right after this message 
is Stone with Real Delusion. This is Mike Scotia from Ministry and Rigor Mortis, and you're listening to WMSC 90.3. Thank you very much.
Okay, that was just Monster Magnet with Look to Your Orb for the Warning from Dopes to Infinity. The Rolling Stones with Let It Loose from Exxon Main Street. The Michelle Gun Elephant with Gypsy Sunday from The Greatest Hits. The Flower Traveling Band. Oh, man, great, great psychedelic stuff from the 70s with Satori Part 2 from Satori. That was featured very heavily in the really wild classic Deadly Outlaw Rekka. That was a 2002 uh, pretty much Yakuza movie. Really, really fun stuff from Takeshi Miike. Uh, Sacrifice with Black Knight from Crest of Black. Stone with Real Delusion from uh, the self-titled album Stone. And beginning that hour was my interview with Sue Kanapka, the uh, Metallic Rose. She was pretty much one of the OG people at WMSC uh, that supported metal. She was, I believe, also the longest tenure, the longest running tenured uh, metal radio host at WMSC ever, possibly. And um, wanted to also uh, talk about some news recently. Uh, this is from the New York Times: Making play streets mean streets. In December, two days after the Wenjian Liu and Raphael Ramos from the 84th Precinct in Brooklyn were killed in a squad car by a man who had come from Baltimore having declared a violent will toward the police, Mayor Bill de Blasio spoke at a luncheon for the Police Athletic League. The league by then could trace its roots 100 years, having begun in 1914 when police, police commissioner Arthur Woods, an advocate for the poor who worried about the effects of tenement life on children set about searching for vacant lots that could be converted to playgrounds. The objective was twofold, to occupy children sufficiently enough that they would resist nefarious temptation and to foster the kinds of relationships between young people and police officers that would keep whatever tensions might arise to a minimum. At the time, Mr. Woods embarked on this proposal. A police captain named John Sweeney had developed a program for young teenage boys on the lower east side of Manhattan that put them in uniforms for marching drills and set them on a course of running and swimming and learning first aid. By 1917, the program known as the Junior Police was operating in 32 precincts with the even more ambiguous goal of creating genuine bonds between underprivileged children and the men dispatched to regulate their behaviors. Mayor de Blasio delivered his speech to the League in the midst of a series of fatalities at the hands of police officers that have come to define national debates about race and justice over the past year. The work you do is a message to all to us all about where we need to go, he told the audience. The work of bringing police and community together is sacred. That work has arguably become more difficult to achieve in the wake of a declining of declining public money over many years funneled to the league. From the beginning, one of the league's signature initiatives has been the Play Street, closing off blocks in high-crime neighborhoods to create safe recreational spaces where there are few during the, su- during the summer. There have been a place for children to see law enforcers in a evangelical frame of mind. Robert M. Morgenthau, the former Manhattan District Attorney who has served on the board of the Police Athletic League for more than 50 years, always visits the play streets on the day they open. They require permits and funding. Last year, there were 50 play streets at a high about 15 years ago, where there were three times as many. Then the city's housing authority was funding about 60 of them. As its financial troubles have mounted, it has been able to support fewer and fewer. Last year, a spokesman for the League said it could fund only 10. In the decades since the League has created, since the League was created in New York, police athletic leagues have formed in cities around the country. Diminishing resources have clearly caused problems elsewhere. In the diminished Baltimore neighborhood where Freddie Gray, the man who died after a ride in a police van last month, came of age. A police Athletic League Center closed a few years ago. Political fights surrounding the passage of President Bill Clinton's crime bill in 94 meant that the final legislation left little money for the kind of preventative policing the league practiced. The cutback in federal money has really hurt us, Morgenthau said. People said they have money in there for midnight basketball. How ridiculous can you get? Police officers would engage with children as coaches. It was a tragedy that they said recreation wasn't crime prevention, he continued. I went down to Washington to lobby and got nowhere. In 1991, Mr. Morgenthau had taken a girls track team and a boys basketball team from league programs to the Soviet Union to compete, but money for those sorts of expeditions disappeared as well. 
most of the government money the league receives in New York comes through contracts to run early childhood and after school programs. The league raises about $26 million a year through these contracts, as well as foundation grants and individual donations. It spends everything it earns. It has no endowment and it gets no money from the police department. This year, the department disbanded its liaison unit, which had provided every police athletic league center in this city its own dedicated officer. The challenge was a result or the change was a result of its reorganization of its community affairs bureau, the police department said, but one that seemed tone deaf to the current civic trauma. In New York, the Police Athletic League is newly run by Frederick Watts, a former Manhattan prosecutor and the son of a detective. It is his wish to have more police officers at after-school activities, police officers teaching children how to use computers, police officers interacting with children positively on a regular basis. It's hard to pull an officer off a radio run for a suspected for a suspected crime to go to a talent show. I get that, Mr. Watts said. With street encounters in the inner city, you're meeting someone in an emotional circumstance and everything becomes charged. And the kid, usually a teenager, is often encountering a police officer for the first time. This all sounds like soft stuff, but a lot. I have a lot of experience with police officers, with kids, their parents. And when things have been done right, and even when terrible things happen, you can enter the dialogue in a more constructive way. In the 80s, when Michael Blue Williams, the music industry manager who had overseen the career of Outkast, among others, was growing up in the Kingsbridge section of the Bronx, he started to go to a police athletic center on Webster Avenue when he sensed he was on the verge of getting into trouble. I distinctly remember one day I hopped the train. I jumped at the turnstile, Mr. Williams told me recently. A cop came up to me and asked me where I was coming from. I said the PAL. He said, they teach you this at the PAL? And then he let me go because he understood that the bad kids weren't going to the PAL. And also in the weather, um, pollen forecast for uh, the grass for um, pretty much tonight from May 9th. Up until Tuesday, um, grass pollen is at a moderate level. Weed pollen is at the low to none levels. And tree pollen is very high through the next couple of days. Um, We're going to be seeing temperatures of around 61 degrees low um, tonight, 86 degrees uh, high tomorrow, and pretty much staying in the mid to high 80s and dropping down to by Tuesday night 59 degrees Um, there will be possibly a little bit of showers on Monday night and that's it for now and let's just get ready because it's midnight o'clock now and you're listening to WMSC 90.3 in Upper Montclair, New Jersey 